0: You're listening to the Plaguecast, a podcast where we talk about some of the most significant historical pandemics to try and get a handle on what's going on in the world right now. I'm Max and I'm here with my co-host and sister, Sam, and today we're going to be talking about the Black Death. Um, so this is arguably one of the worst times to be alive in all of human history. For for a lot of reasons that we'll get into on in the show, but the biggest of which is that friend of the show, Yersinia Pestis, came back with quite a vengeance. So uh, let's kind of take a step back and just kind of talk about like the world at the time. So the time period we're talking about, the Black Death occurred, was 1346 to about 1353. That was like the first wave, and kind of like we've talked about in like our previous shows, like there are multiple waves. So depending on where you want to draw that cutoff. Um, it could go as far as like the middle of the 15th century. Um, So there's a lot of, there's a lot of plague going around, but this main outbreak is what's usually referred to as the Black Death. So Europe at the time, um, a, a good way to think about it is to picture like drawing a map of modern Europe on like a glass pane and then dropping it. And then all the pieces are like individual states. So, like, what what are today, like, just regions in, like, any particular state? Like, in Spain, there's, like, Catalonia or, like, um, you know, different areas in France, like, Anjou or in England. There's, like, England, Scotland, Wales, like, all of that. Um, they're all basically completely independent. And all of this at the time were pretty much exclusively monarchies. So, you had a king at the head, king or queen at the head, mostly a king. Um, And they had absolute control over their nobles, which were just, like, basically warlords. um, And they were hereditary positions. And under them, you had kind of an ambiguous class of, like, merchants that were, like, basically, essentially not slaves. But that's all you could really say.
1: Is that the bourgeoisie?
0: Yeah. Actually, it literally is. Yeah. In France, they were the bourgeoisie. Um, So, and at the time, they didn't have much power. Um, and actually, kind of because of the bla- the plague, they actually kind of came into their own. And they were the only ones who really weren't tied down to a system that wasn't unable to change. So this whole world, um, this is the Middle Ages, this is the High Middle Ages um, or the Late Middle Ages. Um, and in this time, like society had pretty much stagnated. There wasn't a whole lot of innovation. There were like pretty constant like, wars, but not a lot of, you know, big geopolitical changes. Um, Things were kind of just, like, constantly fighting. It was an unbelievably violent time to live. Um, And on top of all of this, uh, the living conditions of, like, the average person, even of the bourgeoisie and even of the nobles, were probably really awful. Um, We talked about... um, Justinian which is kind of like the worst part of the Roman Empire like the tail end of the Roman Empire they the people at that time even the ones that were worse off would have been significantly better off than like most of the people during the late middle ages
1: do you know what caused that to be
0: well um you know part of it is um in the time of the Roman Empire there was something called the Pax Romana and there's a lot of like, There's a lot of benefits to having a massive empire. You've got lots of people that aren't really fighting. So you're not really devoting much of your energy to like warfare between like communities. There's generally um, a lot of peace. Laws are consistent. Money's consistent. Economic policy's consistent. Um, And there's really widespread trade because all of this, like basically good conditions to do business. And basically with the fall of the Roman Empire and the fragmentation into all these little, like, glass shards of empires, um, that pretty much went away. And each little, um, almost to a city-by-city basis, were kind of struggling on their own against each other, not with each other.
1: So there was no standardization of, like, anything?
0: Not really. Basically the only common thread um, was that just about everyone was responsive to the dictates of the Pope. Um, so they were all kind of nominally Christian, but they were Christian. Um, and so if the Pope say were to call a crusade, theoretically, basically every nation of Europe in Europe would answer. Um, and they'd go do whatever the Pope asked.
1: Do you know what crusade it was at during the Black Death?
0: So it was towards the tail end of the crusader era. Um, and honestly, I don't know. Um, specifically there's it. kind of the, the crusades are actually kind of funny cause they, they started out as like what you think of like the crusades and like, like the movie kingdom of heaven or like, you know, with the Templars or the nice hospital, hospitaler. Um, and it's like really cool and like, you know, kind of a terrible concept because you're going to just kill people in a different land in order to like, you know, I don't know, save their souls or whatever. Um, but at the end it was just kind of like, yeah, this is, this is a crusade and it's going to be like, I don't know, do something stupid that the Pope wants. That's clearly has no like Chris, quote unquote Christian benefit. It's like if one single kingdom, like there was a, I think a king, a crusade against a kingdom in Spain or like a prince in Spain, um, that like pissed off the Pope. So he called a crusade and all of Europe went and attacked him and that was it. That was, that was a crusade. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what number crusade this was.
1: Probably not an effective one.
0: Yeah, not a very effective one. Um, and, honestly, it didn't happen often. And at this time, when, like, the Pope tried a couple times to call crusades, and people were just like, nah, I'm just going to stay here. You do my own thing.
1: You use your crusade card. Yeah, points. you
0: use your crusade card. Yeah. yeah. You're done. So, yeah, so so medieval Europe was not a great place to live. Like, before the plague... Um, and then the plague hit, and then it became the worst place to live in all of human existence. In fact, it was so bad that in the 60s, when the RAND Corporation was trying to model like what the aftermath of a all-out thermonuclear war would be, um, they looked back at the Black Death, like the aftermath of the Black Death as their analog.
1: Really? Why?
0: Because um, the Black Death, the one thing it didn't have going for a, like a nuclear war comparison, was buildings weren't destroyed. But um, in a lot of places, society kind of broke down um, at, so in the, the the shortened era that we kind of talk about as being the Black Death, that um, 1346 to 1353, um, possibly as many as 25 million people died in a very short amount of time. And that was like, a third of the population of Europe at the time. Um, and that percentage of death is unseen anywhere in human history on that scale. Yeah. It is It is just an unparalleled, just not very good, no good, bad time.
1: So where did all this start?
0: It started... Um, Well, it started kind of where plague is most prevalent today still. Um, It started in um, kind of Kazakhstan, um, Mongolia, um, southern Russia, like that kind of area. So at the time, this um, this was like just a generation after Genghis Khan. So it was a massive Mongolian empire that had been broken up into several splinter kingdoms. Um, so we, we start getting a couple, um, kind of scatter reports of like on gravestones, like so-and-so died of the plague. Um, and we can see that there's more like graves sites dug in particular areas in that. And that was in like the 13, you know, thirties, 1340s.
1: Did they know it was the plague, like Yersinia Pestis, or were they just saying a plague?
0: Well, and so that's, that's kind of a debate, um. So that's not, not everyone hundred percent believes that, you know, 1330s, we were getting some cases because, because at the time people would just say like disease equals plague and they didn't like really differentiate, like, you know, plague has buboes and it's transmitted by yersinia pestis and all of that. Um, so we don't know for sure. Um, we can kind of reason that it, well, we know it was some kind of, um, outbreak of illness. Well, I'll say that in the 1330s. Um, and then we get more sure as it kind of gets into areas where there was much more prevalent, like, written records. So that was kind of just in the steps of, you know, Kazakhstan. Um, and then it kind of started getting into more settled settlements in what was then called the Khanate of the Golden Horde. So that's, like, one, like, splinter kingdom of Genghis Khan's empire. Um and we start, we start hearing about, you know, this bit, what we're pretty sure is plague. And that's in like 1345, 46. Um, it's when we're like first starting to be pretty sure that this is the Black Death plague. Um, and then, so around this time, we know it's happening and it's starting to take out these bigger and bigger cities. And it, and it seems pretty bad, but it's not, you know, unheard of in history. But where we really, where it really um, kind of enters the, the narrative of the Black Death um, is in the Crimean city of Kaffa, which is modern day Theodosia, which is not a city that I had, I had ever heard of. It is uh, kind of an outpost settlement by the Genoese, which are like Italian, basically colonists. Also a sponge cake. Oh, yeah. Genoese sponge cake. Mm-hmm. Delicious. Absolutely. Yes. So right at this time, I don't know if they were baking their sponge cake, but they were definitely um, trading a lot of things with the, the Mongols, the, the Khanate of the Golden Horde at the time. They had this like, kind of little outpost settlement. Um, so the, the story kind of goes that the Khan, Khan Janibeg, um was the leader at the time. He besieged the city of Kaffa. And he did this for a long time, but kaffa um, it was, it had a access point to the sea. So even though his armies were surrounding it and besieging it and, you know, had the catapults and like siege equipment, um, they were still able to be resupplied. So the siege wasn't going to be broken anytime soon. It was kind of, you know, it was kind of a stalemate. Um, and then all of a sudden the plague kind of sweeps in from the more Eastern steppes. And starts just ripping apart Jenny Begg's army um, to the point where he wants to he wants to punish these Genoese. He wants to take their city, he wants to win. Um, and at a certain point he's willing to do that like no matter how many lives it costs, but at the same time, he gets into an impo- impossible situation where he just he just doesn't have enough troops to even like, effectively besiege it, even if he's going to like risk massive bloodshed. Um, so he's, he decides, you know what it, I can't, I, I cannot besiege them. So he lifts the siege. Um, but before he does this kind of as a last, like fu you to the Genoese, he catapults, um, some of his plague dead into the city. Um, and then there's some argument about whether this, they would actually have spread it or if it was just like little rats, you know, crawling underneath the city and just getting in like a rats do. Um, but I whatever the truth is, he's kind of credited as being the father of biological warfare um so however however, they get infected, the Genoese start dying in droves, and it's just um just a scene of massive carnage because at this point they're still trapped within the city with the contagion, which they have no idea what is causing it. It came out of nowhere um and Basically, then, you know, time goes on. The sieges is eventually completely lifted and the Genoese escape like mad, running from this, what they think is a cursed city. And they they go back home to Genoa um, and they also make a lot of uh, pit stops around the way, kind of all around the Mediterranean. Um, and they wind up seeding these um, infections of plague. All over the Mediterranean that's brutal, yeah, it starts in these first couple cities, um, and with plague, we kind of talked about before there's two forms there's the bubonic, which is probably flea spread, uh, and there's the pneumonic, which is um, spread by respiratory droplets, the kind of bleeding cough that you hear about a lot um, and for whatever reason, plague this particular plague seem to be much, much, much more likely to become either hypercontagious, contagious bubonic or pneumonic, um, even more so than even the worst plague we have now. Um, so these little seeds that the Genoese spread, um, they begin just a massive conflagration. There, there are accounts from many, um, different settlements and for whatever reason, the like medieval chroniclers really actually wrote about what was happening as opposed to the Justinianic, um, people. So we have a lot of firsthand gr- just absolutely awful accounts, um, from firsthand witnesses. Um, and you get accounts of like basically like ghost ships, like ships crewed by only dead people that just wash ashore and then all of a sudden, an outbreak comes because the rats are still alive, um, or you know, a single or a handful of sailors that are still alive run off of their ship um, and into the city, and then suddenly the city is doomed. Um, so this this spreads to these coastal cities, the the high like throughput trading centers. Then it spreads to other coastal cities, and then it spreads again much more rapidly than any plague ever in like modern times or in the rest of the history of the world, it spreads inland um, and basically envelops the entirety of Europe kind of going like from coasts inward and then up into Russia um, in the course of just a couple of years. And basically um, there's, there's kind of, uh, some places weren't hit as hard um, specifically like Poland, um, but they were also hit pretty hard. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of how plague started. Um, and in this time, again, like we said, 25 million dead. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good time to be alive.
1: No. What was it like for the people at the time? Like just mm. day to day beyond an overarching horrible time?
0: hmm. Well, a little different in each city, but we can kind of go through some, like, generalities. So at the beginning of these outbreaks, it tends to be mostly bubonic. So that's the, the flea-transmitted one with the big old buboes um, and, you know, high fevers and you get really sick and you die. Um, and then later on, it seemed, if you hit a critical mass of people, it will, like, enough times enough people it will go to the lungs and spread via lungs and that's mostly spread by the lungs is
1: um whether or not it spreads to the lungs based on like chance probability so like one in ten
0: there is there's is, so if you get it by the lungs you usually spread it by the lungs um the counter the other like the other aspect to that is In certain plague strains, it goes to the lungs more often, we think. Um, And for whatever reason, this one just happened to go to the lungs quite a bit. Okay. Um, So, but the chroniclers of the time, I mean, you know, having a bubo is pretty significant. They wrote about that a lot. Coughing up blood and then your whole family getting sick or people you just barely interacted with getting sick... Um, That's something that they consistently pick up on. Um, And at the time, so people thought of diseases as being spread by miasmas, which I think we mentioned in the last episode. Um, But they are their their idea of disease was that, um, you know, feces smells bad and you can get sick from feces. So maybe it's the smell itself that gets you sick. Um, So prevention, they would have been very, very focused on, you know, oh, the, this, this person smells bad. I need to get away from them as fast as I can. Um, whereas they didn't do things like I should bathe often or wash my hands because I'm carrying disease particles. They didn't think of it that way. They thought it was just spread via these smells. Um, there was also a conception that um, because it was so contagious, you could spread it through what was called the evil eye. So you could look at someone, and then you know, I don't know, transmit you know, a, I don't know, a demon or evil or spells, and then you get sick. Bad energies. Yeah, actually, yeah, you'd transmit bad energies by sight. Um, so they, they had kind, they were kind of edging around this idea of of what we would now think of as contagion, but not quite getting there. So the people of the time would have thought of it; they would have thought of it in those terms. They also would have thought of it in terms of like. This is a punishment from God. Um, So that's kind of the lens that a lot of people took. But just kind of going through their, like they would have, they would have experienced day by day Um, early on, kind of as with all pandemics, it kind of starts slowly. And then once it spreads to more people, they spread it quicker um, because they have just this law of averages. Um, And then once it gets to a certain like critical mass in a population, it just lights up. And suddenly it seems like everyone has it. You've got so many friends that have had it. And of those between 30 and 60% have died. Um, And so you think, because we're primed to think about, you know, the negative numbers, you think everyone who gets this is dying. All my friends are dying. Um, And so this feeling of panic would have set in you. Um, You would have been desperate to try anything Um, at the time, (laughs) like all physicians were kind of charlatans. So there wasn't really, you know, a snake oil salesman to profiteer off of this. Um, But people would have done anything like the groups of people um, called the flagellants would beat themselves with whips to try and like atone for what they thought of as the sins of their group, their community. Um, And that obviously didn't work. Um, they tried, um, punishing people because they thought maybe they're the ones that did this to us. Maybe they poisoned us. And that's why this is happening. And that obviously didn't work. They tried, um, you know, resorting to the medicine of the time, which was things like bleeding, which was things like, um, some herbal medicines that sometimes did work as advertised, um, but often were completely ineffective against the plague, um, and then mostly they kind of just resigned to their fate. There's kind of a, a couple observers would say that there were basically like, you know, three or four types of people in the plague. The ones who would basically just get so depressed and wouldn't do anything. The people would who would think, this is the end of the world. I'm going to do everything that I've ever wanted to do. So they would rob and steal and have sex and um, do all kinds of bad things. Um, and then there was the group that thought, like, I'm going to die and i'm gonna go to heaven or hell soon so i need to be like super pious so i'm gonna like go to church i'm gonna donate like everything i have to the church i'm gonna like pray all the time i'm gonna like you know beat myself with a whip to atone for my sins um and that that was kind of the 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 categories people fell into and honestly governments were kind of the same um it's actually kind of interesting. Like in in England, um, Edward III um, was the king, um, and he actually kind of didn't take it very seriously at first, um, and just kind of brushed it off. Um, but then eventually, his daughter died, and his like you know palace was being inundated with plague, and people were dying in the streets of London. And, and then he kind of went the other way and was like, "Okay, we need to like do everything possible. We'll just like just, I don't know, lock people together." in what is essentially quarantine like keep the sick away from the healthy which is actually a good idea um they tried um improving sanitation um some places like in um venice actually had um gondolas like the classic venetian gondolas they would go down um the canals and they would basically say like in monty python Bring out your dead, um, and people would just like put load their dead up onto the gondolas, and they would take it off to be buried in massive uh, mass graves. Um, but that worked because it um, it took away a source of infection, um, and then eventually, kind of, the disease just burns itself out. Um, and then, so all all of this together, we can maybe go kind of in depth. There's there's one um, account I remember reading that really just stuck out to me as, like, probably one of the most horrifying things I've ever read. Um, it's, it's a guy, it's a cobbler who lived in Siena. Um, his name is Angolo Di Toro, and he was kind of, like, he, he grew up poor um, and kind of married up. His wife's name was um, Nicolo, I think, um, or Nicolio, or something like that. Um, and, and anyway, he, he um, kind of just as a pastime wouldn't, like, record what daily life was in Siena. He would talk about like, you know, government projects. He would talk about, um, whatever happened at church. He would talk about his kids, who he loved, he would talk about his work. He would talk about, you know, oh he bought a new house and stuff like that. Um and so he'd just been doing this. Um and then in like 1347, 1348, um, plague hits Siena. And he starts, um, just kind of talking about what he sees. He sees, um, people being buried in mass graves. And he describes, you know, a layer of corpses, a thin layer of dirt, another layer of corpses, because they didn't have time to build another like plague pit. Um, and the, they eventually just had all these shallow graves. And then he describes the, dogs, or I guess the wolves from the surrounding countryside would come in and they would tear out the corpses and they would run through the street and eat the dead. Um, and all this just terrible, terrible. So he talks about how, you know, the people were becoming so desperate that they, community leaders made this huge donation to the church um, to like hold extra masses and light extra candles and have these, you know, processionals going through the streets, which is a terrible idea in the time of plague, but they thought they were like trying to like help. Um, And he, he talks about, um, there's a quote that like every book about the plague repeats. He said, people said and believed that this was the end of the world. And then to top it all off, at the very end of his narrative for the year 1348, he um, he has just the the saddest line in, like... And there, there's there's times in history where you think of, oh, these people are, like, very different. Like, think look how backwards they are. Um, and then there's some times where you really feel like this is just... This could have been me. Um, and he writes, I, Angolo de Toro, um, called the fat... Because he was chubby... Um, buried my wife and five children with my own hands and i when i read that i literally cried and this is a guy who lived 700 years ago and you can just oh oh my god you can just feel how horrible it was oh that's brutal it is it is i'm tearing up now yeah yeah And just literally all over Europe, this is repeated over and over and over. There's so many just, you know, mind boggling stories like in Avignon, the Pope. So the Pope was in France at this time for just long story. Um, He just would had to keep going out and, um, you know, consecrating new ground because they didn't have enough room to um, bury the dead. And then eventually he just consecrated the river because they had to just throw the dead in the river.
1: Oh my God.
0: And in, I mean, there's accounts from Ireland. (laughs) There's This is actually, it's terrible, but it's kind of funny. There's a Pope talking about, um, his, his famous line is waiting among the dead for death to come. Um, and he goes on and on about how, if there is anyone left in the future after this great catastrophe, I'm leaving, um, this record. So you'll know what's happened to humanity. um, And he said, and he specifically says, I'll leave this amount of parchment at the bottom um, for if there's anyone alive in the future to fill this in and continue the narrative. And then almost like in a scene from Monty Python that a new author in a new script wrote, and here it seems the author died. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. So then it's just uh, there's so many stories like that just over and over across all of Europe. It seemed like every single city had its own chronicler. And England kept like, really, really detailed records. So you can go into like the tax logs, you can see how many people died. You can see that people, you know, were like including in their will, like really distant relatives because there was just no one left. It was again the worst time in human history to be alive.
1: Yeah, I believe you now. So during this time, did it, I know you mentioned some of the remedies of the time, like mm-hmm. bloodletting and mm-hmm. different herbs, but who was doing this? Was anyone doing anything?
0: Um, yeah. Um, so th- they had, um, we talked kind of about the prevailing medical theory at the time. There were um, doctors, um, there were like physicians, and then there were like surgeons, which were separate dealios. Um, they, and they would try and help um they would kind of ply their craft in the way they knew how and honestly it was pretty heroic of them because doctors and nuns who took care of the sick and priests who administered to the dying um were all like killed at incredibly high rates um so yeah there were there were plague doctors like the the thumbnail of our of our uh podcast you've got like the classic plague doctor costume that happened that um, illustration, and I, as far as we can tell, that ex- specific getup was from later centuries. Um, <clears throat> but many of the, the ideas would have been the same. So, for instance, um, the Pope's private physician, um, Guy de Chelyac, um he was pretty like, he, he kind of had a rudimentary understanding of, you know, plague being contagious Um, he did think it was because of bad smells, um, but he kind of took logical steps even because of that kind of, he would like want the sick separated. He would, um, he would try doing things like bleeding, which like kind of everyone did. Um, and he just, a lot, probably one of the most important things he did was observe and continue observing. Um, and even when, um, the Pope and many of the other people with means left the city of Avignon um, when the plague was getting really bad. He stayed. He stayed to take care of people. Um, so, and, and he like was very aware that he was probably going to die because of it. Um, and eventually, he did get sick. He got the bubonic form. And because he's like you know a consummate scientist, he recorded exactly his symptoms and what it was like in case he were to die, and he would at least have something from it. Um, then he recovered and he went back to treating the sick. Um, yeah, it was, it's pretty impressive. He's a pretty, like, he's a good guy. Um, and then there were like the nuns, um, who would like take care of the sick. Um, I know for sure there was a group in Paris, um, at the Hotel Dieu, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, but they, they stayed and they continued, um, you know, being up close to the sick and treating them as human beings. Um, and, you know, trying to care for them as best they could, even though most of their patients and eventually most of the nuns would die as a result. Um, so they, they kind of had a medical healthcare community that was kind of, you know, trying by fits and starts to, um, to kind of tackle this pandemic. Um, in some places, they developed, um, like, municipal health boards, um, and their job basically was to quarantine. Like, this is this is where you get the development of quarantine. Um, it's actually, the quarantine um, comes from an Italian root word that means 40. Um, and it is actually, has nothing to do with the duration of the symptoms. 40 just has a lot of religious significance. Like, the Israelites wandered for like 40 days and 40 nights. There's a lot of repetition of 40 in the Bible. So they figured that was a good amount of time. So, and it turns out that was enough. So you get the quarantine, like uh, incoming ships would be quarantined for 40 days. So that like, if there was, you know, infection, you'd see it um, and you can send them away or there wouldn't be and you'd know you, you were safe. Um, and that actually was incredibly effective. So places start, started instituting that. Um, certain countries like Poland actually had pretty strict um, borders um, and would not let sick people come in um so as a result they actually had much lower incidence of plague um and then so we can talk maybe a little bit about the the plague doctor like costume since that's kind of in popular culture and is it's like actually kind of really interesting so the the getup you would have is you'd have uh like a floor length um woolen cloak that was like waxed um so it was like impermeable to water mm. um and you'd be wearing this, um, like, bird beak mask. Um, In the beak, you'd have some sweet-smelling, like, herbs. Um, You'd have glass eyepieces. um, And basically, you'd be covered head to foot, and you'd be wearing gloves, and you'd have a little staff that I think has some kind of religious significance. Um, So all of this together, they thought that the the get-up was, like, I don't know, scary or something it would scare away the plague. I, I'm not exactly sure why the bird thing was a deal.
1: Maybe but it's maybe it's because like crows and different vultures would feast on the
0: honestly, on the dead. yeah, yeah. That is probably a pretty good guess. It's uh, they. I'm sure they were thinking something along the same lines. Mm-hmm. Um, the I do know that the the herbs were because of the miasma theory. They thought okay, bad smells is bad is. Disease, so let's do a sweet smell, and that'll be good. Um, and they also had the the glass eyepieces um, were because to ward off the evil eye, because they thought you couldn't get the evil eye by looking through glass. Dress for the job you want, not the job you <laughs> have. <laughs> yep, that's that's very true. That's very true. They they thought they they thought they were being very clever look thinking of all these different ways to like thwart like the evil eye and the the miasmas and they were very clever um but it, it turned out they were they were right they were exactly right but for all the wrong reasons they so they had the long cloak um which prevented the fleas from biting them and kept them you know secure from droplets um, they had the glass eyepieces which obviously blocked droplets um didn't block the evil eye Um, so they still had to worry about that, of course, but you couldn't get like fleas and you couldn't get like sputum in your face. Um, the, um, the mask they wore was, um, wasn't like airtight, like an N95, um, but it like blocked enough of the particles to be effective. And the the staff they used, I've heard different accounts. Um, I, the, the most charitable of which was that they would use it to examine the patients like poke them. Um, just to, rather than touching them with their like gloved hands. So that, that physical distance was also, um, an important, I've also heard that they used it because, you know, um, in times of crisis, you like resources are scarce and specifically doctors are scarce. So people wouldn't be like crazy basically to get to a doctor they, they would use it to beat people back with the staff. So I'm not sure if that was, I'm not sure if that's true, but I'm going to choose to believe that's true. (laughs) So that that's that's the plague doctor. They were they were going around um, not during the Black Death in this costume, but probably with similar ideas. And and later plague outbreaks, they would they would don this costume, and that's that's how they would they would treat the victims.
1: So during this time, was anyone like especially persecuted? Because mm. this is a lot of stuff and like horrible things. Did, yes. Who did they blame?
0: Well, so it, it's actually the French blamed the English. The Genoese blamed the Mongols, um, and everyone else blamed the Genoese because they initially brought it. And that was actually fairly well known, but above everything, like the single, like common dark thread through all of Europe was that everyone persecuted the Jews. And it's like, it's like not even funny. Cause they like, they literally did it all the time like it was like they would just be uh, like in we talked about some of the chroniclers like w- like talking about daily life mm-hmm. um one of them mentions like today a great like the great new addition was planned for the chapel and also all the Jews of this area were murdered oh
1: my god <laughs> yeah it's
0: like it's like not even remarked upon in a lot of places but that was before the plague and during the plague it got if you can believe it significantly worse um so there was actually a um there was a medieval conspiracy theory it was and it was as crazy as modern day conspiracy theories and it was actually the basis for something that the nazis would later use there was a legitimate perception among like the commoners that a literal person named rabbi Yaakov, um who lived in toledo spain was orchestrating a giant Conspiracy of Jews to go around and poison wells. This person didn't exist, of course, but enough people believed it did that they would you know, capture, um, you know, notable Jewish people in the community, torture them um, until they confessed to, you know, poisoning the well. And just like in things like the Salem Witch Trials, they would torture them until they named other named other names, and they would just, you know, make up things. But anyway, this spiraled and this was like, this was bought into by a significant number of people and, um, governments. In fact, notably, however, the, the Pope actually condemned this. So that's like one point in his, he actually, he, and he just, he basically issued a statement that, look, the Jews are dying at exact proportions that the rest of you are dying. This makes no sense. Um, and also like, like the timeline doesn't work out and all this other stuff. And this is totally non-Christian. Why are you doing this? So he, but that's all he did. He, he said something, which arguably is more than the Pope did during World War II. So, like, good for him, I guess. Didn't really do much, but at least he didn't do nothing. Good
1: Pope points. Uh, yeah,
0: Pope points to that, Clement VI. Um, so you get to this point where there is this just, you know, kind of anger um, and this weird conspiracy theory that enough people believed um, that people would go out and just massacre, like, entire Jewish quarters. So, and we, we kind of talked about it at the beginning um, that, like, anti-Semitism was already pretty rampant in Europe. Like, massacres of Jewish people were pretty common. Um, not, not so common that, like, the Jews couldn't, like, have a good life and weren't, like, really prosperous and, like, you know, active members of, of society. Um, but, like, even before the plague, um, in France, for example... Um, starting in the 13th century, Jews were required to wear um, yellow triangles on their clothes to signify they were Jewish. So it was really easy to hunt them down later on. Um, And again, you get accounts um, because the medieval chronicles were really good about writing things down um, of like whole neighborhoods being slaughtered or locked inside synagogues and then set on fire. Um, or dragged out into fields, and this is actually um, kind of echoes a lot of you know accounts from the Holocaust about like you know some people be sobbing, some people they there are even accounts of people singing and dancing as they're the Jews singing and dancing as they're marching towards bonfires to burn them alive, um, and oh, uh, it's just terrible. Um, and there another account of. Uh, A Jewish man who had been traveling abroad um, and then came back after this only to find that all of his family had been massacred. And like, I wish I could remember the exact line he said, but it was, it could have literally been like typed up on a typewriter in like 1945. It's horrifying. Um, So yeah, so life was really, really bad in medieval Europe, probably the worst ever, but it turns out it could get worse. And it was worse for the Jews.
1: So what happened after? Like,
0: Mm.
1: what did it do to society and the world?
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, as you can probably imagine, like this amount of death isn't isn't just going to go away. Um, So society actually changed extremely radically after the Black Death. This was this wasn't the end of the Middle Ages by any means. There were still um, wars that would continue. The Hundred Years' War would still go on. Um, you know, there were disputes in the pap- in the papacy between like popes and anti popes. Um, you know, kind of quote unquote imposter popes. In Impopsters. In yes, the f- the fourteenth century is wild. It is just <laughs> nuts for so many reasons. Um, uh, so yeah, the, there are anti popes. There were, um, you know, religious persecutions. This is kind of the beginning of the Inquisition, I think, or the, the forefront of the Inquisition. Um, so a lot was still to go on, um, but basically the biggest change that the Black Death created in Europe was that this huge like death like created a big labor shortage, uh, and that had tons of downstream consequences. So first off, um, with less people, um, there was initially kind of a run on the market because now goods were suddenly so much cheaper because there weren't as many people buying them. Um, and then later there was extreme scarcity because there was like the goods that people produced, um, just weren't being made. Um, and after that, um, it kind of settled into an equilibrium where before the black death most of the population was literally enslaved. They were, they were serfs. They literally belonged to the land and the land to the lord, um, the landlord, the like noble. Um, and after the Black Death, they started becoming a lot more valuable. So one thing that changed was rather than like, viewing serfs as property of the landlord to be worked like basically to death, Um, it actually became more profitable to charge them rent. And by charging them rent, you made them free. Um, So basically, gradually, all of Europe was kind of emancipated from this, like basically slave labor system. Um, And suddenly these people had money to spend, you know, in the marketplace and they could move relatively freely um, from place to place. So this was a huge change. Um, and with this, they, uh, the peasants kind of developed a class consciousness um, and they started to strike for higher wages because there weren't, they, they were now a, you know, a scarce resource. Like farm labor was a scarce resource now because so many people were dead. So um, there, there was kind of a couple responses to this. Some people gave in and they got higher wages and that was excellent. That was huge for the peasantry. That was it. Exactly what they wanted. That was a huge step forward. Um, in other places, the people in power push back. Um, in uh, a lot of places, they did things like debasing the coinage, which is like you, you've got a coin that's like a certain percentage gold, and you just decrease the percentage that's gold. So it looks like the same coin, but it's really worth less. Um, and that works great at first, but then it has like basically causes inflation, um, and it's terrible for the markets. And then people's faith in you as, like, a leader and you as, like, a different sovereign um, basically collapses. So that was one big consequence of that. Um, The other thing they did was they tried to, like, enact legislation, like, in parliament or, like, pass a decree by a king um, in France that you, you, it was illegal to, for a peasant to ask for more, for wages that were greater than pre-plague level wages Um, and actually the law that England passed, um, actually stayed on the books and was used as like, you know, historical justification for breaking up strikes in like the progressive era in like the 20th century. So it has huge staying power, huge consequences. Um, and so you've got kind of the, the, the people at the bottom kind of shouting up and the the people at the top pushing back down. Um, and this created um, pressure in society, which would eventually break. So in England, you had multiple revolts, including the biggest of, which was the Peasants' Revolt. In France, you had numerous Peasants' revolts, the Jacobins, um, and then later several successful Peasant Revolts, where they would, in some cases, just kill like, the nobles and take control. Or they would you know, stop working, they would strike. Um, and demand higher wages. And even if they didn't get their demands met right away in the course of history, it like always favored the underdog in the long run. Um, so basically all of society started to change and what was, um, a feudal system became more of a mercantile system, which became capitalism. Because now they had, um, peasants had money to spend. Lords knew that peasants were a scarce resource that they could you know, get money out of and they could use the money to invest in other things and they could do all this other stuff. So it basically created the whole economic system that we have now. The other long-term consequence was that even though there were less people farming, crop yields actually increased because you weren't just farming like all the land, you were only farming the best land. Um, And with that, they had a little more freedom to kind of experiment and invest in new technologies. So this was arguably the point where Europe really accelerated out of the Middle Ages towards the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment. This was when they started recognizing the value of new technologies like the cannon or like different, you know, plow systems or... um, recognize the value of investing in um, kind of a strong bureaucracy that could manage um, what would happen with like big revolts or with big um, outbreaks of disease. So this was, um, without really exaggerating much, the event that shaped the modern world. So yeah, this it, it's it truly is hard to overstate how much the Black Death changed society. Um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, another um, kind of side um, consequence was that uh, a lot of the nobles, when the pandemic was happening, left the city, left their people to die. A lot of the priests, although there were notable exceptions, stopped um, ministering to the sick, and it really highlighted the hypocrisy of the people in power and created um, a distrust of the powerful that had that lingered for literally centuries. This this was one of the seminal events in not only the 14th century, but in human history. Not only because of the massive amount of death and the massive amount of suffering, but by the way, it just fundamentally changed society.
1: So why does it matter that we're talking about the Black Death now during COVID-19? Mm-hmm.
0: So um, I th- the, I think just in general, the big reason to like learn history is to avoid the mistakes of the past. So one of these is not reacting early enough, being really aggressive about, you know, quarantining the sick and uh, what we know now as like contact tracing, find out who they were in contact with, separating the sick from the healthy as much as you can. Um, Another big thing that we learned from this, from like the way it all panned out is that we need to be really really careful for, um, an uptick in xenophobia and racism and just persecution of, um, minority groups. Um, I think that is one of the big things we can take away from the black death and try and ensure that it just doesn't happen again. Um, the 14th century was a very different world, but people are very much the same. Um, and although they're not, they don't literally believe that, Well, I actually, I I was going to say, they don't literally believe that someone created this disease and is doing it, like, to harm people, but I stand corrected. People do. Um, And that's a very... It's unfortunately a very common human reaction. Um, And it's important to recognize that just as horrible and wrong as it was in the 14th century, it is horrible and wrong today. Um, The next thing I think we can take away from this is um, kind of in the long run, um, we need to be aware that, um, pandemics, um, put a disproportionate stress on lower classes and lower income brackets. Um, and because of that, um, it would be very reasonable to suspect, um, increased tensions between classes, um, even in the modern like world. Um, so, Basically, listeners, wherever you are in the side of that, um, you should know that this, this is a time when people will be agitating for change and when people in power will be pushing back on it. Um, so somewhere in that spectrum, you have to basically find a place and know that um, you really have to think long term and not just about what, you know, was, what was the status quo pre-plague um, because the world has changed. With every pandemic, the world changes. Um, and I think that's really um, what we can take away from the Black Death. You've been listening to the Plague Cast. If you like this episode, be sure to check out one of our others on your podcast platform of choice. And in the meantime, stay safe out there and wash your hands.